Welcome to Spirit Matters at spiritmatterstalk.com. I'm Phil Goldberg. Uh, those of you who are regular listeners are accustomed to hearing my co-host, Dennis Ramundi, start the interviews and introduce our guests. Dennis could not join us today, so I am flying solo, and I am very pleased to be welcoming uh, an old friend and most interesting person, Clyde Ford. Clyde has had a really interesting life, <laughs> an interesting spiritual life. He was a software engineer, a chiropractor, a psychotherapist. He lived in an ashram for many years, part of a Buddhist Sangha, and he is also a highly accomplished author of more than a dozen books, uh, including, just to mention a few, We Can All Get Along, 50 Steps You Can Take to Help End Racism, Think Black, a memoir of his father, the first black software engineer in America, and uh, an upcoming book called Freedom Dues, How Black Lives Matter and Creating White Power and Wealth. He's also a fellow of Humanities Washington, of, at Was in Washington State, where he uh, presents a, a program called Let's Talk About Race. So Clyde, welcome. Phil, it's so great to talk to you. It's been too long since we've had the kinds of discussions that we used to have so many years ago. I agree. So I'm, I'm really delighted to have this opportunity. Um, please uh, fill in uh, our listeners on your uh, spiritual story, your, your past, how you came to uh, the uh, practices and affiliations that you've had uh, and how it brought you to, to where you are now. I'd love to do that, Phil. And, you know, I'm chuckling as I think back in my past because I really want to say that my spiritual journey started when I got thrown out of the Baptist church at four or five years old. Well, I didn't quite get I didn't quite get thrown out, but I got a little somewhat disavowed. And here's what happened. I was in New York City, uh, actually in the Bronx. We went to uh, Trinity Baptist Church, which several generations of my father's family had gone to. And one Sunday, I was in Sunday school. Uh, the Sunday school teacher rapped on the table three times, you know, like knock, knock, knock. And then she asked us, what does that mean? Now, she was fishing for that phrase from the Bible, knock and it shall be answered. But I thrust my hands up and I said, knock, knock for Knickerbocker beer. Because... <laughs> Knickerbocker beer at the time was a very popular brand in New York City, and they had a commercial on TV featuring a hand knocking. Well, the news of that got around the church really quickly, and my father was sure that I was on my way to Satan. But my mother, my mother in her wisdom, said, you know what? Maybe the Baptist church isn't the place 
for my daughter and my son, and she yanked us out. We spent about a year going to various alternative churches around New York City. Oh, Religious Science, Science of Mind, Eric Butterworth, Unity, you name it. And she would ask us after we went to one of those services, what do you think about that? Well, generally, we gave it a thumbs down because it wasn't very interesting to us as kids. And then one Sunday, uh, she dragged us, uh, somewhat kicking and screaming, to the uh, Community Church of New York, one of the largest Unitarian Universalist churches in the country, actually. And afterwards, we were so enthusiastic that I couldn't wait for the next Sunday to get back. Because there was something I saw in Unitarian Universalism, something I found which really touched me. Phil, I really think it was in part how the Sunday school classes were run. Every month, age-dependent and grade-dependent, we studied one of the world's great religions. So Shintoism, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, um, Christianity, um, Hinduism. And because it was New York City, we could actually find a service of that particular faith, wear the clothes appropriate to one of the cultures that might be uh, using that faith, and actually even eat the food associated with that culture. So, Phil, I've been to bar mitzvahs and bas mitzvahs, and as I said, Hinto services and Buddhist services. And here's the funny thing. I actually grew up thinking, wow, this is really cool. This is the way the world is, mm. this kind of melting pot of spiritual traditions where everybody recognizes each other, not knowing, oh, it was quite a bit different from that. You know, Phil, from Unitarian Universalism, I found my way to uh, Swami Satchidananda, the, uh, the guru who opened Woodstock all those many years ago. And uh, I was involved with Satchidananda for, oh, almost 20, uh, 20 some odd years. And after I finally left the ashram in Virginia uh, to move to Washington State, I became involved in a more tr traditional Buddhist meditative practice um, of Vipassana, and that is the style taught by um, S.N. Goenka. So, you know, that's kind of a thumbnail sketch of, of my spiritual journey. I still uh, sit Vipassana regularly, but I also still do yoga regularly, and I do pranayama regularly, and many of the practices that just became so much a part of my um, time I spent uh, in the ashram and around Swami Satchidananda. That's great. Thanks, Clyde. I, I, I'm always, um, I always marvel at how two people who are uh, ended up in similar spiritual uh, places uh, and are, uh, could come from such different backgrounds. Well, similar in that I grew up in Brooklyn. Okay. Around the same era you were growing up in the Bronx. Uh, but my parents, the last place they would have taken me was to anything religious, because I, <laughs> I was raised by atheist parents who thought religion was the opium of the people. And so I was taken to Madison Square Garden and Ebbets Field and <laughs> Yankee <laughs> Stadium and places like that. And, you know, so I had a completely different background and uh, and here we are both sort of uh, ended up uh, drawing from these traditions of the east i even had a yoga class in the 60s uh, 
before I moved from New York to Boston. And only after the movie of Woodstock came out did I realize the guy I took the class with was Satchitananda. And um, so, fascinating. Yes, Some... and I'm assuming if it was early on, Phil, it was probably on the Upper West Side, right. yes. where there was only one studio at 500 West End Avenue. West and, End uh, Avenue. And New that's York. a place I taught um, uh, when I was teaching in Tokyo, New York City in those days as well, too. So yes. who knows? It was, only, uh, it was only after Woodstock that uh, Satchitananda's uh, Integral Yoga moved to uh, the village, to West 13th, where they still are. That's correct. Um, and uh, yes, I remember taking the subway uh, up to uh, <laughs> West End Avenue. Anyway, so um, somehow you ended up being a chiropractor and then a psychotherapist. And I'm very curious to know about um, both of those professions, one body oriented, one mind oriented, and how they fit in with your spiritual life. Well, actually, Phil, that's a great question, and they flow directly from it. Um, I was working as a software engineer at IBM when I first got involved with Satchitananda. And one of the things that Satchitananda, he, he never pushed anybody in any direction, but he always said, you know, make sure your life is one filled with service. And so I was introduced while I was working at IBM to an African-American chiropractor named Mark Jasper, who had a practice in, in, in White Plains. And, you know, one night, Phil, um, Mark was doing some muscle testing on me, and I said to him, you know, Dr. Jasper, which is what we call him, Doc Jasper, I said, Doc, I don't know what you just did, but I think that's what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. So no, he laughed, and he said, you don't have a clue what you're even talking about. I said, you're right. And six months later, I was in chiropractic school with Satchitananda's blessings, in part because uh, being a chiropractor really was a direct way of serving other people. The challenge I had coming out of chiropractic school, uh, Phil, was that when I first got into practice, and I did come back to Richmond, Virginia, to be near uh, the ashram, which was in Buckingham, Virginia at the time, uh, I started to see clients who kept coming back to me over and over and over again. Now, a lot of my colleagues were like, don't question it. You know, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. That's a great practice. You've got a referral, repeating practice. Just be thankful for it. But I didn't understand and didn't like the fact that folks were coming back to see me over and over again with essentially the same complaint. So I started asking them, if your body could tell me why you're coming to see me, I'm not talking about your mind, I'm talking about your body. What would your body say? What would your lower back say? What would your neck say? What would your shoulders say? Oh my God, Phil, the responses I got, which were just, they were incredible. I heard, and these were mostly, not exclusively, but many of them women, well into their 40s or 50s, who said to me, sometimes in whispered tones, I've never told anybody this. This is their back or their body talking. I haven't even told my husband, and I've been married to him for 40 years or, you know, or 30 years. But And then they would narrate these histories, these stories of often sexual abuse and trauma that happened in their early life. So I began to put together really quickly, either I do like my friends say, and I don't probe too much, or I better get the training that allows me to probe further, because I sure as hell, excuse me for saying that on the air, I sure as heck didn't get that training in chiropractic college. 
So I went back to psychotherapy school to do three years postdoc training in psychosynthesis. As you may know, Phil, psychosynthesis is a form of psychotherapy which has at its center a notion that a person's spirituality should be the force which helps integrate their psyche. So psychosynthesis was very much in line with everything I was interested in, everything I had done, and a way of helping my clients move beyond the fragmented trauma of their past to a more cohesive sense of who they were in the present moment and moving forward in their lives. Very interesting. Um, I know now there are, are body-centered uh, forms of psychotherapy, but that must have been fairly unusual back then. And I'm also curious uh, uh, whether um, consciously you uh, were aware uh, or you, you saw a connection in your yogic training to the uh, presence within us of some saras and vasanas as uh, you know, the sort of impact of the past uh, in the, the psyche and in the body. Well, I think pretty directly, Phil, and in particular, not only in the yoga training, because obviously in the asanas we're doing, in yoga, in the various postures, you put the body in various positions that often bring up emotional issues, but particularly with the Buddhist training that I've been involved with in the last 30 years, Vipassana, the whole point of Vipassana is that you scan the body, simply tuning in as you move through your body to physical sensations, recognizing but not attaching yourself to the fact that underneath the physical sensations are often emotional or psychological issues that may emerge simply in the process of you bringing your awareness to that area of your body. And the whole point of Vipassana is you move through the body with just awareness of physical sensation. You don't worry about the emotions that may rise. If they come up, you simply observe them in a non-attached way. Wow, I can tell you from having done uh, the courses, Vipassana courses is what they call the retreats. And those retreats are 10 days of 11 and a half hours of sitting meditation a day when you're doing this. It is very powerful, very cleansing in the sense that you do move through trauma that you may be holding on to emotionally, psychologically, or even physically, I've experienced that in my own practice, and I've talked to others who've experienced that as well. And the funny thing was, Phil, before I even got to Vipassana, that's the kind of thing I was asking trauma survivors, sexual abuse survivors to do, was simply go through their body and be aware of the physical sensations in their body. If emotions surface, fine, don't worry about them, but just do that until they could move through their body without having the traumatic emotions uh, arise for them. So in a sense, without knowing it, I really was practicing and teaching in my practice a form of Vipassana uh, all along. Interesting. I, another thought occurs to me, uh, uh, Clyde, based on my, you know, experience and research over the last few several decades, um, in the world of hatha yoga and asana practitioners, 
Mm -hmm. Often sitting practice, meditation practice is given short shrift and it's often ignored. Yes. In, in the uh, Buddhist sanghas, for many, many years, sitting was the main thing and the body was ignored. And yes. I saw a lot of you know, long-term meditators uh, get, you know, their bodies getting frail and worn down in, in their middle age and uh, then belatedly starting to, you know, uh, look into asanas and yoga therapy and that sort of thing. You've uh, paid attention to, to both. Um, but is what I described um, how you have seen things in, in those worlds you've, you've traveled in? Absolutely, with this exception. Satchitananda was someone who always said, you do the asanas so you can prepare the body to sit in meditation. Right. And, the, and the Vipassana practice has said, you scan the body or you work with the body because it's a vehicle of being able to sit and go deeper into the mind and the psyche. Uh. So for me, those two practices came together in a really nice way. But let me also say, Phil, and, and just speak very personally about this. Uh, you know, I, I've sat one Vipassana course where afterwards I had sat so intensely that my knee was hurting for three months. Yeah. And it occurred to me that maybe um, this Buddhist practice wasn't about destroying your body, but honoring your body. And I stopped sitting quite as intensely so that I could both sit and also enjoy hiking and all the other things that you can do with our physical body uh, since we're in the world. So I'm a big believer that you don't have to sacrifice one for the other. And that really, you know, the body is the temple of the soul and the soul manifest in the world by attention through the body. So I really believe in those two. Yeah, I'm a strong believer in comfort myself. Um, yeah. Clyde, um, let's shift gears now. Uh, you, yeah, sure. You're involved in a program in, in Washington State called Let's Talk About Race. So let's talk about race in the spiritual yes. context. Um, yes. It's been my observation and many, many others over the years that in the world of uh, the, the Hindu-derived uh, teachings and communities and in the Buddhist-derived sanghas, um, it tends to be overwhelmingly white and middle class. And yes. I know, you know, people here and there have grappled with that over the years. I saw it in the early 70s. Um, and now it's it's really front and center in both the, the yoga community and the Buddhist community in in this age of Black Lives Matter, uh, a very healthy development uh, in my uh, perspective. How have you seen that and to what do you attribute it? Yeah, well, again, thanks for asking that question. And like you, Phil, this is an issue that's been around uh, spiritual communities for a long time. I know my own personal experience, uh, even at the Sachidananda Ashram, when I was given directly by Sachidananda a very high spiritual name, Shiva, 
Um, there were many other, no, I shouldn't say many, there were some members of that community who couldn't call me that name. And I remember Sachinananda almost physically wrestling another young man and saying to him quite pointedly, you call him Shiva. And it was essentially because I was one of the few African-Americans uh, who were part of that community. So, you know, way back then, but even now. So I really, I listened to a somewhat sad report of uh, a young black man from the United States who went to sit um, Vipassana in Burma, thinking what an opportunity this is to sit directly with Buddhist monks. And while he was sitting, while he was eating, uh, eating with the monks, he was kicked by them. And the kicking was all about the fact that they didn't want him because he was African-American there. And one of the things that he can be heard saying on this podcast is how much he recognized his position as one of the first ever African-Americans to be in this community and how much he wanted to set kind of a, a standard for the kind of people that they could expect if they opened up uh, to folks who looked like him. So this is a problem that's been with spiritual communities uh, for quite some time. You know, there is a number of reasons why this might be true. Uh, one of the things is a simple question of privilege and access. Phil, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the Vipassana meditation is 10 days uh, as I said, 11 and a half hours a day, and you have to drive four hours to get there. Now, for most people, they can't afford the time off from work to do that. And that then makes the people who can a kind of select group of folks, often white, often young, often at least reasonably well off uh, financially, and that puts it out of the reach of a lot of other folks who might benefit from it, but just don't have the access to it. So access, I think, is a really big thing as well, too. And also there is, within spiritual communities, attitude. So attitude and access. The attitude in spiritual communities that often stands as an impediment is what we talk about, what John uh, Wellwood coined as spiritual bypass. And you know, Phil, that means that you simply say, all we need is more love, all we need is more metta, in the Buddhist terms, all we need is more compassion, and we don't have to worry about anything else. And yes, we do need more love and we do need more compassion, but we also need to kind of get our, uh, our act together and begin to advocate for the kind of social justice and social change that's important. Too many spiritual people, too many spiritual communities have an artificial division between spiritual practice and social justice. I don't believe it needs to be that way. And that's one of the things I'm trying to do as I work with spiritual communities is to break down that separation. Uh, I wanna hear more about that, but I wanna get back for a moment to um, the question of access. Yes. Um, what you described uh, is a uh, Vipassana uh, a retreat kind of setting that would be a challenge for, you know, even well-off people to arrange yes. the time and all that. With respect to just learning um, meditation classes, yoga classes, joining a, a sangha in a major city on, a, you know, to, to learn Vipassana, whatever it might be, um, even there, it would seem that there's an access problem. I, I hear people 
when confronted like this, yoga studio people and, and the others saying, but, you know, we are open to everybody. We just let it be known that we're here. Whoever comes, comes. We welcome everybody. We turn nobody away. Uh, we'd love to have more African-American people, more Latinx people, uh, and so forth. They, they just don't come. Um, and then you think, well, where is the place? Well, it's in Santa Monica or it's in, you know, the Upper West Side or whatever. Um, and so talk a little bit more about that, because I think uh, many people are saying, well, we have to counter that by having uh, specific outreach to underserved communities. Yeah, and those are two actually really great points. I am someone who believes that um, you have to have outreach to underserved communities. Look, outreach is in the very nature of our spiritual traditions, Phil. It was Vivekananda who at the 1899 <laughs> World's Fair made an outreach from India, and that's how yoga got here. So the um, idea of outreach is I have deep to just, within yoga. I just have to, um, I'm sorry to do this, Publicly uh -oh. quiet. <laughs> Please correct it, me. It was 1893. Oh, okay, okay. Well, I was close. I <laughs> only, was six only years. six years off. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, is that outreach. Come on. Ever since yeah. uh, Ashoka, King Ashoka, back what is this ninth century? And you can correct me on that too. Um, <laughs> when King Ashoka said to his Buddhist devotees and practitioners and priests. Each of you, two by two, go out into the world, travel as far as you can, and spread the teachings that we take so dearly. I mean, that's how Buddhism got to Tibet. That's how Buddhism got to China. That's how it got to Japan. So the idea of outreach is deep within these spiritual traditions. And I, don't, I, I cannot abide anybody who says we don't need to do outreach. Yes, you do. And you need to do outreach just like outreach has gotten you your spiritual center, your spiritual community, your yoga studio. So I think outreach is really important, but there's something more there as well. So my, my, I have a, a good friend, Victoria Robertson, who uh, ascended to the highest levels, she's an African-American woman, ascended to the highest levels of uh, Vipassana practice. She attempted to do outreach by bringing the techniques, the meditative practices to those underserved communities. And she was actually met with an incredible amount of pushback, uh -huh. which eventually led to her essentially having to leave the organization from American teachers of Vipassana. So oh. a lot of, yeah. Oh, so, I thought you meant yeah. pushback from uh, people in the African-American community. No. She, she went into, oh my goodness. No. Tell no. me about she, it. Yeah, so, you know, Victoria actually set up one of the first ever um, uh, courses for people who have a of African descent uh, with Goenka's approval. She was actively working in 2008, 2009, 2010 to recreate this model around the country where there would be, you know, essentially Buddhist teachings going into African-American communities. And it was the American teachers who actually, the American teachers of Vipassana who said, we don't need that. If we bring that in, 
um, then we're going to bring in the very racism that you're trying to remove. I mean, a lot of kind of, uh, I think, not well-reasoned uh, pushback towards Victoria, which eventually pushed her out of the organization because she couldn't realize what it is uh, that she wanted. And of course, there was then the saying that this is not the teachings, not Victoria saying that, but other people saying that. And mm. so, as you know, we often we often say, Phil, it's the teachings often that aren't the problem. It's the misguided intentions of the faithful. And yeah. in this case, this was really the case. That's fascinating because one of the things I've learned st studying all the gurus who came here, beginning with Vivekananda, Yogananda and all the rest, is they were very skilled at adapting the language and the content of their teachings to the audience they were uh, addressing. This is upaya. Yes. This is yes. skillful means. Yes. So you would think that somebody uh, going into a, an African-American community who knew that community was a member of it would be better received and know how to communicate just as uh, I mean, if, you know, if I were uh, bringing yoga or meditation to an Orthodox Jewish community, I would, <laughs> I would, I would enlist somebody who understands that community. And you to, might even be do, wearing a yarmulke. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't do it. I would be not, not qualified, but I would look for somebody like yeah, that. Sure. That's fascinating. Oh, so, man. So, and, and you know, and again, it's something I don't quite understand. Shivananda in Rishikesh said to all of his uh, his students, right? Satyananda, Nada Brahmananda, Vishnu Devananda, Venkatesananda, all the Anandas, go forth <laughs> into the West. And he didn't say be fundamentalist and right. just bring the teachings as you know them. He said, as you were saying, find a way to make this consistent with whatever is there. The problem, Phil, and I think the problem is an interesting and unfortunate problem in our Western minds, is that when Western students get hold of teachings, there is this sense of rigidity and hierarchy that sets in. And once you get that going, it's as though there's only one way or the highway. And that's a very deeply Western notion that you do not find in the East, mm -hmm. where there is much more of a sense of flow, integration, and it doesn't matter the form as much as the substance matters in terms of the teachings. You know, you wouldn't have Zen Buddhism. I mean, Zen Buddhism is a combination of what was found locally with the spirituality and what came across from uh, Buddhism as derived from Hinduism. But it's a hybrid. It's a beautiful hybrid, but it is a hybrid because of the way it was created. Unfortunately, the Western mind, you know, hybridization maybe is not, it just doesn't make it. There is a sense of rigidity, a sense of fundamentalism um, that uh, that sets in. As one uh, person quipped, uh, the problem with the West is that they put the fun before the mental. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's right. Uh, the fundamental. Um Clyde, you mentioned uh, the important subject of the intersection of uh, spirituality and uh, political realm or social justice realm. What have you been finding out there in uh, our era, which is you know, so 
politically uh, sensitive and and uh, frankly at a time when ignoring the this political and the social issues uh, is not only hard to do but in almost irresponsible to do yeah what have yeah. you been finding yeah so phil i mean one of the things that i find and try to bring to that discussion is a sense of the long storied history and connection of spirituality and social justice and i really start with my mentor vincent harding um, many people do not know the name Vincent Harding, but Vincent was really one of the very close uh, associates of Martin King. Uh, Vincent actually wrote many of the words that we attribute to Martin King. Uh, a lot of people know that uh, uh, Beyond Vietnam speech that uh, King gave at the Riverside Drive uh, Church in 1967, uh, almost a year to the day before his death. What few people know is that Vincent Harding actually wrote every word that King spoke that evening. Vincent was my mentor. Vincent was very deeply engaged in the black freedom struggle, and Vincent sat Vipassana. And so mm. that really began to open my eyes to how uh, people I deeply respected in the freedom struggle, like Jim Lawson. I mean, what happened when Jim Lawson, as you know, uh, stood up in front of national television to give a eulogy for his good friend, the late John Lewis? The first word out of his mouth was satyagraha. And that, I started laughing when I heard that. I said, oh my God, I bet you most people sitting in the audience don't even realize what that word means. You know, one way of translating it is nonviolent action and don't realize what that connects us to, not just to Vincent, but this history of the African-American struggle being very directly linked um, with the, the whole process of Hinduism and its connection to social justice as well, too. So many people know or at least can understand the connection between Martin King and Mahatma Gandhi. But the truth, Phil, as you know, and, you know, as I certainly try to help people understand, that connection goes back way before King. Um, and so one of the ways that I like to help people uh, understand that connection, and there's a lot of eyes that are raised when they realize it, is it goes back to the early 1900s when one of Gandhi's students came to lecture at a number of historically black colleges and universities, in particular, Howard University there, and also Tuskegee. At Tuskegee, uh, this man, I think his name was Charles uh, Freer, uh, actually met um, George Washington Carver. Now, George Washington Carver is a figure in African-American history, well known for his work on peanuts, but really what Carver's saw himself as doing was helping poor black farmers find a way to eke a living out of soil that had been depleted by years and years and years of cotton farming. And so he looked at all of the crops, peanuts and soybeans that you could plant that would nourish the soil, but also what you could do with those crops beyond just oils and beyond some of the other things that were done. So just as a simple example, a Carver was to discover that you could use peanut husks to actually pave roads. And he just looked at all these wonderful things that you could do 
And in the process, he wrote a number of pamphlets. Again, we're talking about 1900s, 1904, 1905. He wrote a number of pamphlets for poor black farmers that would help them understand what they could do with their crops, understand how to live better, understand how they could uh, take care of their homes and all of these things. And the one thing he did after meeting Gandhi's uh, disciple, he always sent a pamphlet to Mahatma Gandhi. And so Gandhi then started to use the very teachings of George Washington Carver with his folks that he was working with, the poor people throughout India. And that is one of the earliest, although still probably not the earliest, but a real clear early example of how the struggle here for um, racial equity, racial equality, racial justice was deeply linked with what was going on in India. Well, after that, you saw then in the late 20s and early 30s, people, particularly African-American uh, scholars and philosophers like Howard Thurman, specifically make the trip to India to visit with Gandhi to better understand how Gandhi's teachings might then influence what was taking place here in the United States. And then in 1935, Benjamin Mays, um, one of the deans at Howard University, would also go to India to meet directly with Gandhi. Benjamin Mays was a dear friend of Daddy King, Martin King's father, but Benjamin Mays was also a teacher of Martin King. And so Gandhi's influence then got into the freedom struggle, the black freedom struggle, because of this long connection between the spirituality of the East and the social justice movements of the West. Hey, just one little really interesting tidbit here. Gandhi was to say to Howard Thurman, I teach nonviolence in our ashrams as a spiritual um, a focus before I send people out into the streets, to which Howard Thurman said, you know, in the black community in the United States, we don't have ashrams but we do have churches and we could teach nonviolence in the churches. Those could be our ashrams. That's how the freedom struggle began here. And that's why. Wow. And I want to just bring it full circle and point yes. out that the Unitarian Universalist beginnings of your spiritual life uh, go back to um, the early 1800s when Ralph Waldo Emerson a Unitarian minister discovered the Bhagavad Gita and other uh, sacred texts of India, turned on his uh, friend, Henry David Thoreau, who wrote about the Gita in Walden. And it was Thoreau's uh, book on civil disobedience that influenced Gandhi. So we come full circle. And, and Phil, let, let's turn the wheel a little bit more. And it's a lovely <laughs> story. And let's just even turn that circle and make that circle a little deeper because it was both uh, Emerson and Thoreau who were deeply influenced by Frederick Douglass and yeah. who connected with them so deeply. So yes, it's enmeshed, it's deeply enmeshed, spirituality and social justice. You really can't separate the two, and any attempt to do so really, I think, violates this not only historical connection, but this kind of fundamental spiritual connection that is there. The world we live in, 
and the world we contemplate do not have to be separate. We can do both, and both our attempts, both in terms of inner introspection and extra work out in the world, uh, will benefit from both. Well, thank you, Clyde. That's a great way to uh, wrap this up. Our time has expired. I want to say uh, we're recording this on October 21st. It will not be posted until probably uh, after Election Day. So let us hope that when people hear this, we live in a more uh, hopeful world with respect to the uh, subject matter we've been talking about. Thank I you. Couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more, Phil. Thank you again for inviting me on here. Uh, I hope everybody has voted. And uh, I hope, like you, that uh, the world we now see is a world in which there isn't this incredible gulf and there's a movement more towards healing uh, in social justice as well, too. Thank you, Clyde. It's been a joy. Um, listeners, go to ClydeFord.com, read some of Clyde's books. And I want to say one of my uh, favorites of his is a book called The Hero with an African Face about the mythology of the African continent that will is reminiscent of uh, Joseph Campbell's good work. So thanks again, Clyde. And listeners, thank uh, to all of you who uh, have sent in contributions to help keep us going. And for those of you who haven't, please consider doing so. We want to keep this podcast free. Uh, we need some help uh, uh, with ongoing maintenance and the like. So you'll see a contribution button on our website. Until next time, thank you.